good morning. My name is Blake Jeter, and it is a privilege to preach through the last part of chapter 2 of Malachi this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open them up and stand with me for the reading of the Word. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Hear the Word of the Lord. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? Profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tent of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? A godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord. The God of Israel covers the garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You can be seated. The Great Flood of 1927 is the largest natural disaster that nobody seems to know about. Over 700,000 people were left homeless 27,000 square miles were impacted for up to 30 feet of water. The largest river flood in the United States history with damages that reached almost a billion dollars in 1927. In 1927, that would have been one-third of the federal budget. If it occurred today, it would be many times in damages the size of Hurricane Katrina. If you took Mississippi history in the ninth grade or lived in the Mississippi Delta, you know this to be very well. This is the Mississippi flood that impacted all the surrounding areas in 1927. Starting in the summer of 1926, heavy rains filled the basin and the surrounding states. Record rainfall occurred, and in the spring of 1927, it busted loose. Rising Tide, the Great Mississippi Flood of 1926, is a book that chronicles the warning signs, the conversations, the dithering of local officials, the socioeconomic impacts, but one common thread that you see in the lead up to the flood is a confidence that the levee system would hold. Although the levees have been subject to natural erosions, engineers messed with the levees, raised them, coordinated them, but to no avail. In 1927 in the spring, at its peak, 145 levees broke. And the Mississippi River reached 60 miles in width. Warning signs were missed, compromises were made, and a disastrous flood ensued. This is what we've been seeing 
in the book of Malachi for the last two weeks. In chapters 2, 1 through 9, we learn that the word of God was not being preached faithfully by the priests or embraced by the people of God. Chapter 1 showed us that their worship had become cold, indifferent, and half-hearted. And now in the second half of chapter 2, we see a slow seep of compromise that continues, a spiritual erosion that continues that causes a fatal breach, which is a tearing apart of the family. Why is this important for us today? How is last week's sermon on priests offering blemished sacrifices and half-hearted worship in the temple linked to today's sermon on marriage? Well, a people who says, God, how have you loved us? A people that says, how have we despised your name? A people says, oh God, what a weariness this is. Inevitably, these people start faithlessness in their heart to God, and then faithlessness floods into other aspects of their lives. The Israelites are immersed in spiritual activity, but their worship is a vain ritual. These are people that offer service in the temple to God, but they see it as an unwanted burden. As Hunter said last week, they vowed to give their best, but when no one's looking, they snuck in their worst. They wanted to save their best for something else they loved, something else they treasured. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What came into the minds of the Israelites in the time of Malachi were low thoughts of God, indifference, half-heartedness. These low thoughts had their inevitable end, a lack of obedience in other areas of their lives. So, having dealt with the spiritual decline manifested itself in half-hearted worship in the first two chapters of Malachi, Malachi turns to show us the same spiritual decline in the pattern of marriage. Having seen the people of God doubt the love of God in verses 1 through 6, and the worthiness of God in the first part of chapter 2, there's no stopping the doubt of God's design in marriage in 10 through 16. In other words, having completely failed in their vertical relationship to God, the flood was bursting into their relationship to one another. So what's at stake in this passage today? This is what happens when a people become bored with God. They offer half-hearted worship. The priests don't preach the word faithfully. And you allow the slow process of spiritual erosion to break into a flood into your marriage. So, twice in this passage, Malachi will give an exhortation. This exhortation is, Guard yourselves in your spirit. Do not be faithless. This is the emphasis of Malachi's message to the Israelites, and by extension, Grace Community Church today. Grace Community Church, we should be on guard for spiritual erosion that starts in the heart and then floods into our marriages. So, in Malachi chapter 2, we're going to see two things. We're going to see two problems, Two remedies, 
one exhortation. The first problem in verses 10 through 12, we'll see the marriage outside the covenant community. We'll see marriages to unbelievers. We'll see a second problem, breaking of the marriage covenant in verses 13 through 15. We'll see two gospel remedies. In verse 10, we'll see God's loving fatherhood. And in verse 15, we'll see God's good design and help in marriage. And then finally, in verse 16, we'll see an exhortation to the church. So, let's take it one by one. First, let's look at verses 10, 11, and 12. Verse 11. Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and married the daughters of foreign gods. You see incredibly strong vocabulary in these verses. You see words like profane. You see words like abomination. You see words like faithless. What qualifies for this pointed language? Verse 10b says, you've been faithless to one another. You've profaned the covenant with God. Specifically, verse 11, it says, Judah has married the daughters of foreign gods. The word faithless is used three to four times here in the six verses. It's an obvious emphasis. It's a term that means not honoring an existing agreement. The Israelites have broken their end of their agreement, their covenant with God. What makes breaking their covenant with God so wicked and profane in the eyes of Malachi? Isn't marriage just about my love, my happiness, my preference? Well, there are many reasons, but I'll start with three. First, it breaks the commandment of God. Second, it endangers the salvation of man. And third, it threatens the covenant community. So first, let's look at verse 10. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? First of all, it profanes a covenant. It breaks and distorts a covenant. There are more than a dozen explicit prohibitions in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, to being unequally yoked, to marrying outside the covenant community. Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4, 1 Corinthians 7, all command this. So at its base level, a desire to marry and to marry an unbeliever or someone from a foreign Someone in Israel who is marrying a foreign, the daughter of a foreign god, is an act of disobedience and is necessary of repentance. That's number one. It disobeys the commandment of God. Number two, it endangers the salvation of man. Go back to Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 through 4. God gives a commandment to Israel, quote, Do not intermarry with them, the people of pagan nations, because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. This is not about interracial marriage. This is about not marrying someone that will turn you away from the one triune God. This is not about, this is not about interracial marriage, but marrying someone that will inhibit multi-generational faithfulness. We see Many examples of this in the Bible. One of the most pronounced examples 
is in 1 Kings chapter 11. In our example of Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 11, this is what the Lord says. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said, you shall not enter into the marriage with them, or they shall with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. But Solomon clung to these in love, and his wives turned away his heart. Chapter 11 says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away their heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, as was the heart of his father David. Sound familiar? The people in Malachi's day were not wholly true to the Lord. Their hearts were far from Him. They didn't have a right view of God. They offered half-hearted worship to God, and therefore their marriages became faithless. They'd been carried away to worship other gods, demonstrating their hearts were not wholly the Lord. Third, it threatens the covenant community with God. We see what happens in the seriousness of marrying outside the covenant community here in verse 12. Put your eyes on verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of a man who does this. You might believe that your marriage is your own private personal endeavor between just you and your wife between you and the one that you're hoping to date. But it has a wider impact on the community. This is so important. If Israel decides to marry outside the covenant community, verse 12 says he will cut off their descendants from the covenant. This children of an unholy union from the covenant community. Why would God treat this so seriously? Well, verse 15, we'll get into that later, says he desires a godly offspring. Marriage and children are God's vehicle for carrying the name of Christ to all nations. A fundamental breakdown here creates a fundamental breakdown in the community. One of the best examples is, our, is the King Solomon. His spiritual and physical adultery causes the northern and southern kingdom of Israel to be split apart in his son. In addition, another example is in Nehemiah. Nehemiah lived in the same time period as Malachi, and he observes the effects of intermarriage with other nations in chapter 13. In chapter 13 of Nehemiah, we read this. In those days, in verse 23, Nehemiah, I saw the Jews who had married the women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah. Did you hear that? In this time period, because of the breakdown in marriage in the covenant community, half of the children of Judah couldn't even speak the language, much less worship the triune God. This is a travesty. 
So how did Nehemiah respond to Nehemiah 13? Not how you'd expect. This is what he says. I confronted them, cursed them, beat them up, and pulled out their hair. When's the last time someone pulled out your hair? Made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to sons or take daughters for your sons or yourselves. How would you like to have your hair pulled out by Nehemiah if you were considering marrying an unbeliever? I'm not giving you any ideas, Dustin and Ryan. This is God's passion for his name. This is God's passion for his glory. There are disastrous consequences among the covenant community if you reject God's rule in your life in one area in your marriage, but think you can worship him and serve him in other areas. Grace Community Church, we need to be on guard for this error. A contradiction between our obedience in marriage and our worship on the Lord's Day cannot be long endured. If we refuse to bend the knee to the Lord in our area of marriage, then it's not long before we do the same in other areas. The levy cracks and it breaks. So, what does Malachi encourage these people in? How does he give them a remedy to their problem? Let's look at verse 10. Let's look at verse 10. The first part of verse 10 says this, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? So God's remedy in this faithlessness is to point them back to God's loving fatherhood. It's to say, have we not one father? Have we not God created us? He's saying that we are children of God by covenant and by creation. Why are you faithless then? In essence, if God is your father, you would, and you understood this, you wouldn't be faithless. So first, let's see him as the creator. By saying, has not one God created, Malachi is saying that God is the source, the origin, and the creator of life. If God created you, he has creator rights over us. He's like a designer over his product, a potter over his clay. He has rights. So he's saying if you're tempted to neglect your covenant with God and marry outside of the covenant community, remember he's your creator. You also see he's the covenant keeper. He says, has not one God created us? Has not we all have one father? Have we not one father? He's saying he's the redeemer. He's the rescuer. He's provided a way for them to be adopted into his family. God has redeemed them. He's taken them from the Babylonians. He's established them back into the promised land. He sustained his covenant to them, and yet they flung it aside. Malachi is saying, if you're tempted to neglect your covenant with the Lord and marry outside of Israel, why would you do that to the one who's redeemed you and placed you back into your land? He's saying, marrying foreign daughters of God's that it's not just a betrayal of Israel, it's a betrayal of God as a creator and covenant keeper. Why do you think that Malachi appeals to this aspect of God's character in addressing this problem? 
Why this remedy? I think if the Israelites have decided to spurn God's good design of marriage for an idea of marriage that they see as better, something that satisfies their own desires, maybe increases their social status, their prosperity, they are questioning God's goodness in his design of marriage. And so do we. If we seek marriage outside of believers, we are doing so as well. So Malachi's reminder to Israel and to us today is that God is our creator and our covenant keeper for our assurance and for our good. So, GCC, if you're tempted to date or to marry outside somebody who's not wholly devoted to the Lord, let today's passage be a loving but passionate rebuke to wake up, fortify the levy before it busts out into the rest of your life. Submit, repent to the God who created you, is your Father, and will not stop doing good to you. Remember God's loving fatherhood to you. Now, let's look at the second problem. Let's look at the second problem. Verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Before he describes the second problem, which is them breaking covenant in marriage, he exposes and gives some insight into how their relationship is going with God how they are responding in the temple. You see them say, you cover the altar with tears. You groan, you mourn. It seems as if they know a spiritual chasm has opened up between them and God. They know something's not right. He's not accepting their offering. But they're going everywhere else to try to figure out why. Verse 14, he says, but you say, why does he not? They have no clue. They're giving tears, they're weeping, they're groaning. They're giving lots of spiritual effort like they did in the first two chapters. But this is another manifestation of the heartless worship. They're giving earthly repentance, but no godly repentance. The Israelites are looking for every reason and excuse for why God doesn't bless their offering. He doesn't love us. Is he not just? And they come up empty. They'll blame their spouse. They'll blame God's love. But they haven't understood it's them. It's them that's been faithless. Their faithlessness in the marriage covenant has caused God not to bless their offering. Tim Keller says on marriage that marriage does not so much as confront you with your spouse, but confront you with yourself does not so much confront you with your spouse, but with yourself. The erosion of marriage in the Israelite community has brought them into conflict with God himself, not themselves. They've failed that maxim. They think their problems are out there with their spouse. Their spouse isn't the same person they married 10 years ago. They don't love that person anymore. 
God isn't just, but Malachi in verse 14 is saying, it's with you. You're the problem. So what does Malachi say their problem is? It's that they've been faithless in divorce. Verse 14, because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Verse 16, for a man does not love his wife, but divorces her. You see, the Israelites were clueless on the fundamental part of their relationships before God. They thought they could separate their worship and their outward appearance before God from their family and their home life. They thought they could put on a good face, but still be faithless at home. God will not long endure that contradiction. You see, Israelites in the time of Malachi began to redefine marriage, to whom they would marry and to how they would get out of marriage. Redefinition, that's one of the buzzwords today in American culture, is it not? There's a culture war raging on on the definition of marriage. So-called same-sex marriage in its normalization in our culture, Christians have suggested that the advocates are redefining marriage, and they are. However, long before the Supreme Court decision and Anthony Kennedy, marriage was being redefined here along different lines in the book of Malachi. The redefinition that the church should be most passionate about is not so-called same-sex marriage outside the church, although we should be concerned about it, but it's the redefinition and erosion of the biblical pattern of marriage in the church. The erosion of the pattern of marriage started in the Old Testament, but it's accelerated here in the last few decades, has it not? In the 1960s, divorce rates hovered around 9%. Today, according to the Marriage Project, married couple is is likely to be divorced 45% of the time, 4 in 10. The combination of the sexual revolution in the 1960s, no-fault divorce in the 1970s, has accelerated this decline in the church's followers. Just Google divorce in your search engine at home. You'll see easy online divorce, no-fault divorce, $28.95. Just drive down the highway, you'll see divorce lawyer for $99. Divorce has become all too common and all too cheap. Many of you know this all too well. When I read this passage and the word divorce popped up, some of you in this room immediately developed a pit in your stomach. Few things in your life have been more painful than divorce. Your parents have been divorced, some more than once. Your siblings have been divorced. You may have had a divorce yourself. You may have felt as though you have a scarlet B on your chest, even today. You've had to struggle through courtroom dramas, child support, visitation, custody decisions. And all of this will be experienced by four in ten Americans. Before we move on, I want to speak to you today. This passage is not a blanket universal condemnation of all divorce. 
The New Testament explains there may be legitimate grounds for divorce. And I don't have time to go into all of that today, but my hope is that this passage will be a comfort to you in two ways. First, that you will see the faithfulness of God who has never broken a covenant with you and will always be faithful to you. And second, that God doesn't treat this in a therapeutic way. He has a vision of marriage that isn't diluted or isn't sugar-coated, and he upholds it to the highest standard. Be encouraged to that today. So as we talk about divorce over the next few minutes, I'm praying for you. I'm hoping you'll be encouraged today, not discouraged. So, the rise of divorce and the sexual revolution redefined marriage as an outward, from an outward thing that was for the community, the glory of God, to an inward, set-aside thing about the personal satisfaction of individuals and their fulfillment. Men and women began to compartmentalize our lives in a way that you could be faithful to God, but faithful, unfaithful to your spouse. Malachi rebukes this and says, you can't have outward worship to God when you're faithless to the wife of your youth. The thrust of this passage today is that divorce is faithless. It's faithless for two reasons. First, it is vertically offensive to God. It offends his covenant. And second, it horizontally impacts the spouse and potentially godly offspring. Let's look at that in this passage. Verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Zero in on, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You see, divorce and marriage isn't about you, it's about God. Malachi changes the game here and says, this is not an inward isolated thing. This is an outward covenant. It's a paradigm shifter. You see, in Genesis chapter 2, when God brings Eve to Adam and institutes marriage, he makes it an ordinance. He makes it a continuous thing. In Matthew chapter 9, when the Pharisees are asking Jesus about conditions for divorce, Jesus goes back to Genesis chapter 2 and says, what God has brought together, let no man separate. The two have become one flesh. If you remember Matthew chapter 19, how the Pharisees respond to Jesus' description of marriage and its permanence. He says, if it's so permanent, the Pharisees say, who even wants to marry? Is it not better just to not marry? Jesus upholds the highest standards of marriage by declaring that it is between him and his bride, the church, not just between you and your wife. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, Paul calls it a great mystery that is marriage, that is between Christ and the church. So when we come back here to Malachi 2, verse 14, you see your wife by covenant has a, a deep meaning. This is not just an isolated component, but it's a display of Christ in the church and by covenant. Covenants are not just a legal contract that can be discarded with a good lawyer and $99. They're permanent. They're spiritual. 
Let me give you an example. The Abramatic covenant in Genesis chapter 15, God sovereignly makes a covenant with Abraham saying that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky. He inaugurates that covenant in a ceremony. In this ceremony, he shows his sovereignty and his devotion to keeping his covenant. How does he do that? He makes Abraham go to sleep. Animals are split in half and lined up, and then God passes through the animals. He's saying, I'm so committed to keeping my covenant to you, I'm going to sovereignly do it, and then if I was to break it, I'm going to be just like those animals, cut apart. This is how devoted God is to his covenant. What about another one? How about David? Jeremiah 33, verses 20 to 21, this is what he says about his covenant with David. Thus says the Lord, if you can break the covenant with the day, and my covenant with the night, so that the day and the night do not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, could be broken, so that he shall not have a son reign on the throne. This is the extent that God goes to keep his covenant with his people. Contrast that to the way we keep our marriage covenants today. God says, I'll take on the curse myself and be split apart if I was ever to break my covenant with you. Well, compare that to today. She's not the one that I married six years ago. I'm out of here. I'll break my covenant. God says, I'm so committed to my covenant, the only way I would break it is if you could stop the sun from shining tomorrow at the appointed time. Compare that to today. God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. I'm out of here. I'll break my covenant. People are so uncommitted to their marriage covenant today, they sacrifice their children and their spouse on the altar of their temporary satisfaction and pleasure. God, he's so committed to his covenant with his people that he sends his only son and offers him up on the altar for our joy and our satisfaction. So faithless divorce offends God because it breaks the covenant with him that he would never break with us. Secondly, the other vertical dimension is that God is a witness in this covenant. He's a witness. Look at verse 14. Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Why do you have a witness of a covenant? They observe it. They provide evidence that it occurred. But most importantly, they're called upon to enforce the terms of the covenant. Think about when you got married today or you attended a marriage ceremony. There are many witnesses, isn't there? The state of Mississippi enforces the terms, the legal terms. They participate in the marriage. Your wedding party participates, offering to support, protect, and uphold the marriage. Just as you can't throw off the legal demands of your marriage covenant without consequences, you can't throw off the spiritual demands of your covenant without spiritual consequences. God has a right to enforce the terms of the covenant 
because he only, not only created it, he was a witness to it. Therefore, marriage is more than an inward personal thing, but an outward covenant demonstrating the picture of Christ and the church. Dustin has, in a sermon several years ago, talked about how every marriage is a painting on a canvas. The only question is, what picture are you going to paint? What picture are we painting today in our marriages? Isaiah 54 gives us a picture. In Isaiah 54, verses 5 and 6, he gives us this picture. For your maker, God, is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved, like a wife of the youth who's been cast off. This is the character of our Maker, our husband. That He denies self and calls and seeks after the one that's cast off. But contrast that to the people in Malachi's day. They satisfy self and cast off the wife of their youth. This is what makes divorce faithless. It sends off the wife of your youth in a faithless way. It breaks a covenant with your creator, distorts the picture that God wants to tell to the world, namely that he is faithful even when we're faithless. He's the covenant keeper, not the covenant breaker. When we divorce faithlessly, we're painting a picture that God may be a covenant breaker, and he's not. So that's the vertical. What about the horizontal? Let's look at verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of their spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? God the offspring. Divorces were tearing apart the fabric of the nation by sending away wives of their youth for the wives of foreign gods. The most important impact was that it was impacting the next generation of godly offspring. So horizontally, he's seeking a godly offspring. In Genesis chapter 1, we're confronted with this idea that we are all made in the image of God. We have a creation mandate to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. In chapter 1 of Malachi, we see in verse 11, that from the rising of the sun, my name shall be great among all the nations. Marriage and children and the godly offspring are one of God's chosen vehicles for taking his name to all the nations. So what's he looking for in our marriages? Godly offspring. Instead of multi-generational faithlessness, he's looking for multi-generational faithfulness. Instead of the Nehemiah 13, where half the children of Judah couldn't even speak the language, he's looking for Psalm 78 children. Psalm 78 verse 6 says this, that the next generation might know them. The children not yet born may arise 
and tell them to their children so that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God and His commandments. You see, marriage isn't about you. Marriage isn't about the Israelites. It's about God's covenant. It's about the next generation. Do you know that the decisions that we make every day in our marriages have impact on our children for generations to come? If we allow spiritual erosion to happen in our lives, then our children and our children's children will be negatively impacted. All you have to do is take a look around American culture and see divorce, fatherlessness, one-parent households. This is the fruit of faithlessness in marriage. It doesn't have to be this way. Grace Community Church, husbands, wives, be committed to your marriages and to multi-generational faithfulness because it can turn the world upside down. The best example I have to demonstrate this is from Bodhi Bauckham's book, What He Must Be. He illustrates this in the life of Jonathan Edwards. In 1900, A.E. Winsup studied what happened to the 1,400 descendants of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards over 100 years later. This is what he found. 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers, a dean of a law school, 30 judges, 66 physicians, a dean of a medical school, 80 holders of public office, three U.S. senators, three mayors of large cities, three governors, a vice president, a controller of the U.S. Treasury. They wrote 135 books, edited 18 periodicals, and many went into the ministry. Over 100 sat on ministry boards or were missionaries. One in 14 were were missionaries. This is what God is seeking in multi-generational faithfulness, godly offspring. Can we catch a vision for this? Can we? In Deuteronomy 23, a certain people were excluded from the blessings of God for ten generations. When was the last time you stopped and thought about your family legacy ten generations from now? My parents were married in the 1980s. They now have four grandchildren. If you were to play the math out for 10 generations, it could reach almost 50,000 people. Can you believe that? 50,000 in 10 generations. That would make it the fifth largest city today in Mississippi. When's the last time you thought about your family having an impact on 50,000 people? We must not, at GCC, think about our kids being faithful, but our kids' kids and their kids. Let's be committed to multi-generational faithfulness for the next 10 generations at Grace Community Church. Can you see the picture? If today you are thinking about being unfaithful in your marriage, if you're thinking about neglecting God's covenant, and forfeiting your marriage on the altar of temporary pleasure, just think about what you're forfeiting. 
is a few moments of temporary pleasure worth ten generations, don't make that trade. It'll never be worth it. So, if you're tempted to fatalism as we wrap up, and say, Blake, you don't know how hard my marriage is. You don't know what I've had to go through. Ten generations? I'm just trying to make it through this one. Like before, Malachi provides a gospel remedy to that problem. He provides his good design and his help. Let's look at the beginning of verse 15 again. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? This is God's gospel remedy for the troubles of faithless divorce. Remember his good design. And if you don't remember it, I'm going to give you my help. For the Hebrew scholars, the new Hebrew scholars in the room, this is a very difficult construction. Many scholars and commentators don't know how to deal with these verses, but most of them agree that the construction is, did he not make them one? Did he, God, not make them, the two in marriage, one, one flesh? Did he not make them one? He's focusing on remembering that the God has brought you together in covenant into one flesh. It's his good design. Remember that. You can't just merely fling it away if he's brought it together. Second, he gives a portion of his spirit in your union. Isn't that amazing? Your marriage isn't just a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. God does not require anything of you that he also does not provide help for. So if you're tempted to say, this is too hard, I can't understand, this could never work, let this passage sit on you today. He's given his spirit to you. You have help in your marriage that's better than if Christ Jesus was here in the room today. John 16 says, Jesus says to his disciples, it's to your advantage that I go away, otherwise the helper won't come. You have supernatural help in your marriage. Be confident in that. So God's remedy to faithlessness and divorce is a reminder that he brought you together, and he's going to keep you together by his spirit. So, the final point is exhortation. Exhortation. What is Malachi exhorting the people of Israel in today? Twice in this chapter, he says, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So that's what we're going to look at as we close. He's saying, guard yourselves. Wake up from your slumber. Fortify the levy, otherwise the flood won't be contained. Let's look at verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the Lord God covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is kind of weird language. It says divorcing the wife of your youth is to cover your garment with violence. It's kind of a weird phrase. A modern idiom might be, 
you're airing your dirty laundry in public. It's taking a public display of the erosion of your marriage and making all see it. Malachi is saying here, don't get to that point. Be on guard before it becomes a public rebellion to God. Malachi's exhortation to Israel and to the Grace Community Church is guard yourselves in your spirit. Guard yourselves in your spirit. John Calvin says that the pastor ought to have two voices. The first, for gathering the sheep. The second, for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. In God's sovereignty, this passage, this exhortation, does both. As we close, I want to address several people here at Grace Community Church. To the broken and to the hurt, I want to gather you in like sheep and encourage you. To the ones that are feeling their marriage slipping away, or to the single that's pursuing marriage, I want to help you drive away the wolves and the thieves. So first, to the broken and the hurt. Do you know that in John 4, our Savior encounters a woman at the well who's had five husbands, and the sixth that she's living with now isn't her husband? What does our Lord, our husband, do in that passage? He seeks her out. He calls her. She repents and believes the gospel. Even if you have been faithless before in your marriage, or your parents have been faithless in theirs, we have a Lord Jesus who is faithful, who always keeps his covenant. He's the bridegroom who seeks out the bride. He never forsakes his covenant. He always loves her. And if you're in her, if you're in him, guard yourselves with his love, and he will hold you. To the singles in this church, thank the Lord we have more of them than we had a year ago, two years ago. If you are considering marrying outside the covenant, outside of someone who's a believer, guard yourself. Do not settle for any spouse that's not wholly devoted to the Lord and has a shared vision for multi-generational faithfulness all the way to the 10th generation. Don't settle. Guard yourself. Now, the final application to the married. To the married. You may be thinking this may not apply to you. Some folks in this room are newly married. and Thank God for that. You may not can imagine divorcing your recent spouse. But like the book of Malachi, guard yourself. The warnings and cracks in your marriage may not be today, but it starts with an attitude to God. Boredom, indifference, half-heartedness in your heart are leading indicators that your marriage might be in trouble tomorrow. Be killing sin, or it will kill you. GCC, the newly married, Let's be a church that kills the sin of indifference to God, half-heartedness to God, before it floods into your marriage. 
Finally, to the folks in this room who are married, maybe struggling, you may be thinking, it's too hard, it'll never work. Remember, what God has joined together, let no man separate. If God ever breaks his covenant with you, you can be free to break your covenant with your wife. But God won't break his covenant with you, just like he won't with the day or the night. Remember the words of Isaiah, chapter 54. He's called you like a wife, deserted. The the wife of your youth who she's cast off. Our Lord is the one who redeems and goes after the one cast off. This is the picture worth painting in our marriages. Will we paint that picture? Will you paint that picture? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your example that when you are faithful, even when we're faithless. Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room who heard this message, Lord, that you would encourage them, you would fortify the levy in their lives, and that you would be glorified. Lord, do a work among Grace Community Church. Let us be a church that sees faithfulness to the next generation, godly offspring that from the rising of the sun to its setting, that you'll be great among all nations. Lord, we thank you and we commit this time to you in Christ's name.